0: Good is God? All the time. All the time, God is good. We could look from Genesis to Revelation and see the goodness of God. You know, people like to say, Oh, God was a a cruel God in the Old Testament. No, he was a good God in the Old Testament. He took a stand against sin because sin's an offense. It's a stench in the nostril of God as well as the new testament. But we see his goodness in his son Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the greatest place you can look to see the goodness of God is in his son Jesus Christ. You don't have to look any further. Amen. Amen. We're up to chapter 21 in the book of John now I know a lot of you are new I've been in this book six years six years well that's because I preach once a month this has meant a lot to me it's a great book it's a you know I always say John is like the black sheep of the family you know you have Matthew, Mark, Luke and John you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the Synoptic Gospels. They're very similar. You have difference. There's differences, and God had a plan for each of those. But John is like the black sheep. John went off on a different direction, of course, directed by the Holy Spirit. And as we begin to study John chapter 21, by the way, we're going to do John 1 after I finish. I have, We have one more teaching in the the, the 21st chapter. One more teaching after this. And right after that, we're going to go into John 1. I didn't do John 1, but I'm going to start, I'm going to conclude my teaching with John 1. But, anyways, we begin to study John chapter 21 and John's gospel here. We see a number of things running through this glorious gospel. We see God's sovereignty. God is actually sovereign, I mean, He is in control. We see his omnipotence his not meaning he's all-powerful. We see his power in John 21. We see his omniscience that he's all-knowing. he knows everything. We also see in 21, we, we see evangelism, we see discipleship. we see leadership and we see a picture of the church all in John chapter 21. In our section today. We learn that only with God's presence, with Christ's presence, do we have spiritual success. You don't have spiritual success without Jesus Christ. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to look at John chapter 21, the first 14 verses. So Simon Peter went abroad and hauled a net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples then asked him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for your people here, now as Paul the Apostle prayed for the Ephesians, that you may give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of their hearts open, that they may know what is the hope to which you have called them, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power towards them who believe according to the working of your great might that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come I pray father that you breathe upon this text I pray father that you open every single heart to receive not what John Verde says not what this preacher says, but what Christ says in his word. Open our minds, our hearts. Let us be receptive to what the Spirit of God wants to teach us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This is an article in the Christian Digest titled, Spurgeon's Worst Sermon. How many of you have heard of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Okay, as many of you have. He was Britain's greatest preacher back in the 1800s. If you're a minister, if you're a preacher, or if you're a Bible student, or if you're just a Christian that loves uh, to read, you've read some of Charles Haddon Spurgeon's work. Phenomenal, phenomenal, that's all I can say. But this is what this article said. He said, Mr. Spurgeon once preached what in his, his judgment was one of the poorest sermons. He stammered and floundered and when he got through, he felt that it had been a complete failure. He was greatly humiliated and when he got home, he fell on his knees and said, Lord God, thou, hast, thou canst do anything with nothing. Bless that poor servant. How many times I must have felt like that. I'm sure Brian, uh, we feel like that at times. And all through the week, he uttered that prayer. He woke up in the night and prayed about it. He determined that the next Sunday, he would redeem himself by preaching a great sermon. Sure enough, the next Sunday, the sermon went off beautifully. At the close, the people crowded around him and covered him with praise. Spurgeon went home pleased with himself. And that night, he slept like a baby, but he said to himself, I'll watch the results of those two sermons. What they were. From the one that has seemed a failure, he was able to trace 41 conversions. The one that he thought was a failure. And from the magnificent sermon, he was unable to discover that a single soul was saved. The Spirit of God used the one and did not use the other. And then the article concluded like this. We can do nothing without the Spirit who helps our infirmities. Praise God. As you listen to me over the years, you know I always give a proposition at the beginning. And it's always a challenge to you and what I'm about to speak. And here's the proposition when you trust and obey Christ and not your own efforts, you will be abundantly blessed. Abundantly. This section of John chapter 21 is called an epilogue. You know what an epilogue is? It's like an appendix. It's like a PS. It's like John concluded, really, the last time I spoke, he really concluded there. John 20 uh, chapter, uh, verse 31 and 32. And he said, these things were written that we may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. That was the conclusion. But now John gives a PS. He's kind of tying ends together. Loose ends. You know, what happens to Peter? I mean, what happens to Peter? Peter denied Christ. And John's kind of tying in these loose ends. So, an epilogue, what I said is like a conclusion, what the author just spoke about. Chapter 1 was the prologue of John's Gospel. Now, a prologue is a little different. It's an introduction. It's, a, it's an introduction to a book which tells you about its subjects or its aims. So, in John's Gospel, you have these two bookends, the prologue and the epilogue. And then right in between, you have the main body which tells us about the redemptive work of Christ. Well, now we're at the prologue. Also, since, John, since chapter 21, John makes it abundantly clear. Jesus is alive. Amen. He's not dead. Amen. So there's three points I want to bring to your attention today. The first point is Christ reveals himself to you. Second point is Christ withholds from you. No, nobody likes to hear that one, that Christ would actually withhold some good things from us. And point three, Christ provides for you. God. Point one, Christ reveals himself to you. This is a short, I'm not going to spend much time in this first two points. The third point I'll spend a little more time. Very short, but sweet point. Verse one again. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. And verse two. He he revealed himself to Simon, Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples were together. And then verse 14. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead in Galilee. The sons of Zebedee and and the two others of his disciples were together. Now first I want you to notice... The two apostles that he named, Peter and who? Thomas. Peter and Thomas. Peter, the chief denier, and Thomas, the chief doubter. This is a great picture of God's wonderful grace. Peter denied him. I mean, so did Judas, but Judas didn't go to God, Christ for forgiveness. He hung himself. Peter denied him and wept wept bitterly because he did it. Thomas doubted him. What a picture of grace. And that's the first two he mentions. And Jesus reveals himself to the seven of the eleven apostles. Obviously Judas was not around anymore so there was only eleven apostles left. And he reveals himself over here to the seven. We don't know where the other four were at this point. In any event Jesus reveals himself for the third time. Now reveal John uses that quite often in, in, his, in his gospel. It's common. Jesus, first, was he, he revealed himself in the flesh to Israel. And then we see in the, in the wedding at Cana, he revealed his glory. And now we see himself reveal himself here. He reveals his person. He reveals himself in his glorified state. And we should notice that he only appears to those who believe in him. When he walked the earth before his death, everyone was able to see him, but most rejected him. So now he appears to only believers. By the way, the resurrection appearance meant that the disciples couldn't recognize Jesus unless he revealed himself to them. That's part of his sovereignty. You and I are not going to see the glorified Jesus in this life. Until we die, or until he returns. But we can see Jesus every single time we open the scriptures. Did you know that? That's the way you see Jesus today. Dr. Walter Kaiser, he's an Old Testament scholar, he said this. There is no finer teacher on whether Jesus is to be found in the pages of the Old Testament than the teaching of our Lord Jesus himself. He it was who said in John 5.39, you Jewish people diligently study the scriptures, which at that time were the 39 books of the Tanakh, the Old Testament. These are the scriptures that testify about me. That should settle the question. He goes on to say, but even more famously, Jesus rebuked Cleopas and the other unnamed disciple as they walked along the road to Emmaus on that first Easter Sunday. And he said, how foolish you are. And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the Old Testament scriptures concerning himself. And, you know, listen, too many Christians long to see the physical Jesus. They fail to realize that they could see Jesus any time they opened the scriptures. Every time they open up Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Psalms, the Prophets, the New Testament, every time you open the book and read, you will get a revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you're right with God and you open up your Bible, your hearts will burn within you. And like the disciples, Jesus Christ will reveal himself to you. And I told the story before. When I was a new believer, I read the Bible many times. And it was like the words jumped off into my heart. And they still do. They still do. It's just that when I was a new Christian, it was just a wonderful experience to open the word of God. And my heart burned. And I knew it was the truth. Jesus Christ revealed himself to me personally through the pages of scripture. That was point one. Christ reveals himself to you. Point two, Christ withholds from you. Now I know you don't really want to hear that, do you? That Christ would actually withhold. Let's read verses three to five again. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the seashore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. So Peter, who was apparently the leader of of the flock over here, said, I'm going fishing. And guess what? They all followed him. And why Peter and the rest went fishing back to their old occupation? that's what they did before it's not clear John MacArthur says it was disobedience I don't know if I agree with that am I allowed to disagree with John MacArthur Trevor says no I <laughs> know anyway, we have a lot of John MacArthur fans he says it may be, you know it could have been some disobedience involved but if it was disobedience it was out of ignorance I don't believe it was out of some rebellious spirit in them some say Peter got impatient waiting for further instructions from the Lord Dr. Leon Morris said this it is possible that the thoughts of the fishermen were beginning to turn to their former occupation now that they had lost the presence of Jesus we do not know and this incident is not enough to tell us and I agree with him all that we can say is that this is a possibility and that the general impression left is that of men without a purpose which I, I totally agree They looked like they were men without a purpose. Others say, and this is a good possibility also, others say they went back fishing because they simply had to eat. And that's a good possibility. Well, whatever the reason was, they got into their boats, or their boat, one boat, fished all night and caught nothing. Now, I'm a fisherman. And I love this text because I was able to get a lot of illustrations. So I don't want to bore you with a lot of details, but I will when I go out fishing and I catch nothing it's frustrating I can only imagine how it was for these men who were professionals and made their living from it how frustrating it was for them they caught nothing they were professional fishermen they knew the best ways and the best times to fish but they caught nothing even with their fishing skills now fishing skills for me is very important And they had all the skills. You want to hear some of the skills? I don't fish with bait. I fish with lures. I do what you call sport fishing, surf fishing. You have lures. You have a million type of lures. I'm exaggerating, of course. Different colors of lures, different sizes. You have moon phase. New moon, the fish are more active in biting. A full moon, they're less active in biting. Tides. Outgoing tide or incoming tide all affects fishing. Sometimes I go out and everything is against me and I catch nothing. It's frustrating. Um, The the water temperature, very, very significant. Um, The type of bait, the type of line you use. All this takes a little, and I'm not the greatest fisherman. You know, if my son was here, he'd probably amen to that. Um, You know, he's always telling me, Dad, you lost that fish because you didn't set the hook right. But uh, he's not here today, but thank God. But fishing skills, <laughs> fishing skills are very important. And Peter and the rest had these skills. They should have caught. If fish were to be caught there, they could have they should have caught. And as the day was breaking, Jesus standing on the shore of the Galilean Sea asked them if they had anything that they caught. And they answered honestly, no. Now I believe and here's, here's the point one of the points I want to make to you I believe God ordained them to not catch anything to teach them an eternal spiritual lesson well they had to learn as Jesus said apart from me you can do nothing they had to learn that through failure they failed to catch fish That through failure, that's the only way to make progress. They they had to learn that. Well, what was exactly held from the disciples? Was it just fish? Well, first I think they didn't recognize the Savior. I think Jesus purposely, and I'm not being dogmatic about this, but I think purposely they were kept from recognizing the Savior. They didn't know it was Jesus when he said, children, do you have any fish? Was it the early morning mist, as some have said, that kept them from recognizing Jesus? Could have been. I personally don't think so. Could have been. I tend to believe that even though they saw him two times before in his resurrected state, they could not recognize him unless he revealed himself to them. And I believe, by the way, John McArthur agrees with me on this one. (laughs) And, and, And I tend to believe that even though they saw him two times before in his resurrected body, they were not going to recognize him unless he opened up their eyes. Why? Because they were still slow of heart to believe. They didn't understand that without Jesus, they could do nothing. Also, this wasn't only about catching fish, physical fish, but they were to become fishes of men. He also withheld from them, so I I believe he withheld their their recognition of him, but they also, what was withheld from them was their needs. They they needed to eat for sustenance. Oh, John. Christ would never hold food back from us. He supplies all our needs according to his riches and glory. He's not going to let you die. But I tell you what, sometimes he does withhold things from us to teach us. And that's okay. That's okay. Again, to withhold the recognition of his presence and their needs, which in this, case, in this case was food, was because they were going to learn a valuable lesson which they would never, ever forget. Let's bring this down to us today. Christ withholds from you at times. He just does. The, of it, the recognition of his presence. He may withhold from you your needs, which is for sustenance. But for a spiritual lesson, he's trying to teach you, he's trying to teach me. Probably every Christian here has experienced not recognizing Christ's presence working in their lives. There are many times you may have said, I have needs and the Lord isn't meeting them. The bills are piling up. I scarcely have enough money for my family for food. Where is He? Have you ever been there? And in the meantime, in the meantime, Jesus is at the shoreline of your heart. And you don't see him. And there's a good reason. A good eternal reason. A spiritual lesson. Which leads me into my third and final point. Christ provides for you. Christ reveals himself to you. Christ withholds from you. And Christ provides for you. Verses 6 to 13. Let's read that again. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for where he stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went abroad and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of them, none of the disciples dared asked him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. After the disciples' honest answer to Jesus Christ, after their answer, when they said no, that they caught no fish, Jesus gives them instructions to cast your net on the right side of the boat. I don't like to catch nothing when I go fishing. I mean, Okay, so just to give you a little example, I went fishing a few times last week. I caught, I did. I caught about 50 striped bass last week. (laughs) Monday, I caught nothing. Tuesday, I caught nothing. That's frustrating for me. But I I accept it. I still praise the Lord. I want you to know. So I can understand what it... and, 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 And... Before before I even go on, I want to say how hard it is for a fisherman when they catch nothing and they fish all night and all day and they catch nothing and someone asks you, did you catch anything? (laughs) And one of the biggest dreads when catching nothing is leaving fishing and going home and being asked by my wife did you catch anything? (laughs) And I want to scream and say No, all right? No, I caught nothing. (laughs) Or if you were out all day and caught one small striped ass, this is a small striped ass to me. And someone asks you, how did you do? And you'll say, yeah, I caught one. And they have the audacity to ask you, how big? (laughs) Well, now you want to either tell them to mind your own business, (laughs) Or to lie and tell them it was the biggest it was bigger than it really was. You know, they say fishermen are liars. No. My son still to this day, he just told me the other day, he goes, I, I have I go with his waders and I have boots that are twelve inches long. So how I generally measure my fish is by my boot size, twelve inches and twelve inches, it's twenty four. So he's arguing with me, he uses his hand. And he's telling he swears to this day that my boot sizes off and his his little span is right. So the other day I told him, oh, this, is, this was 24 inches. He goes, no, it's only 23. That's what my my fingers are. I said, no, it's 20. And we were arguing on the shoreline about how big this striped bass was. Well, we could do that. Or you can humble yourself and just say, I caught one sardine and, or I caught nothing. When I come home from fishing after a couple of hours... My wife is able to tell that I caught nothing just by my attitude. It's like someone. I want to talk about golfing now. Now I don't know much about golf and I don't play golf and I don't care to. To me, that's the worst game in the world uh, to, to hit a you know. But Pastor Brian loves it, and I know we have um, <laughs> my friend. We love. They love golf. Rich, I'm sorry. You know. <laughs> But it's like if you ask someone if they're a golfer what you shot when you shot a 90 rather than a 72. And if you understand golf terms when you tell the person what you scored they may not say it to your face but they'll think this guy played bogey golf. Am I saying that right? Okay, bogey golf. Because he had a score of 90 on a par 72 course. And you know he's thinking that. Well this is not about Fishing or golfing. This is about the disciples answering with an honest no, a straight, honest no. And they cast their nets on the right side of the boat, as the seemingly stranger told them to do. It's amazing, again, that this that the disciples took instruction from a stranger. They were professional fishermen. I'm I'm, I'm stressing that point because in antique in, in antiquity. Israel, I mean, these guys knew what they were doing. And they didn't need a stranger on the side, on the shoreline, telling them what to do. But it's amazing, they took instructions from a stranger. And I say stranger, even though Jesus wasn't, because they didn't know that person was Jesus. Why did these professional fishermen listen to some person they don't know? I'm going to tell you why. Because... I think for the same reason that the disciples that were on the road to Emmaus when Jesus spoke to them in Luke's gospel and they said did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures and I think when Jesus spoke and gave instructions the disciples hearts were burning within them and they were willing to obey Dr. Bruce Millen says experienced fishermen are not noted for the needy or for the ready appreciation of the advice of a stranger, particularly one still on land. But there was something about Jesus' tone which inspires confidence. So they did what this person, who seemed to be a stranger, told them to do, and they cast a net on the right side of the boat. And they obeyed, and they caught a huge, huge amount of fish. 153 fish at back then. They say it was over 300 pounds of fish. It was so much that they could not drag the net in. I like what Warren Wisby said. He said, A few minutes labor with Christ in control will accomplish more than a whole night of carnal efforts. We used to sing a song, A little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown, and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. Why did Jesus tell them the right side of the boat? Now, we don't know really why Jesus told them the right side of the boat, but I'm going to tell you what I think. Why did He tell them the left side? Why did He tell them the front? Why did not He tell them the back? Why did He tell them the right side? Because I, I believe the Bible teaches us that Jesus is at the right hand of God Psalm 110 verse 1 it says the Lord says to my Lord sit at my right hand he's talking about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God the Father sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet in Hebrews 12 2 fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down where? At the right hand of the throne of God. You see, when you go to the right hand of God, you go to Jesus. When you go to the right hand, there's strength. When you go to the right hand, there's power, there's needs met, there's answered prayer, there's salvation, there's sanctification, and in the end, there's glorification. That's the right hand of God. Without Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, we have and can do absolutely nothing. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I may be making too much about the right side of the boat. Uh, 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 it could have just been that Jesus was just simply wanted them to obey. But the right hand... Of God is Christ. Do you know what Jesus Christ, the physical Jesus, is right now? He's at the right hand of the Father. How do we have His presence now? Through His Holy Spirit. When they did what Jesus commanded, they caught an abundance of fish, and something astonishing happened. John's eyes were opened, and he said, it is the Lord. He yelled it out. It is the Lord. They obeyed. And then they recognized Jesus. It's easier to recognize the Lord's presence when we are obedient. I think we would all agree to that. And Peter, who was stripped to work, it doesn't mean he was nude. It means he had a, a little loincloth around him. But when he, he was, that was the way he worked. That's the way he fished. He throws on this outer garment and jumps into the sea to hurry to Jesus. He loved Jesus. He denied Jesus. But something inside of him knew Christ would forgive him. The first time this happened in Luke's Gospel, after the great catch, if you read Luke's Gospel, this is the second incident. When they made that great catch, when Jesus said, throw your nets out and you'll catch. And they threw their nets out And they they caught a great amount of fish. A great amount of fish. And what did Peter do? Peter says, Lord, depart from me. I am a sinful man. Now Peter runs to Jesus. He jumps in the ocean and runs to Jesus. It's time he flees to him. He seems now not to only understand sin as he did the first time. That's why he said, depart from me. Now he understands grace. Why did they recognize Jesus? I think obedience first. But another factor to consider, it could be because they remembered the similar time of fishing when Jesus gave similar instructions and their eyes were opened. I think when they did it again, they they remembered the first time that happened and then Christ opened their eyes and they realized it's the Lord. Look at me with Luke chapter 5, verses 4 through 10. This is the incident. And when he, Jesus, had finished speaking, He said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing and took nothing. But at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. And the nets were breaking. See, the first time the nets were breaking, second time it wasn't. They singled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, for now on you will be catching men. So two times Jesus gives this directive and two times they catch an abundance of fish. Why the abundance? Well, we need to consider two things. First, Jesus now provides for their needs so they could live, sustenance, but also for a spiritual lesson. As important as their needs were, and they were important, he met their needs, there was a great spiritual lesson there. Jesus was now recommissioning them that they would become fishes of men. Fishes of men. And they did. Become just that, great fishers of men, and I want to say this to you: All who are born again, you're born again. If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a fisher of men. Make no mistake about that. We cast our nets. We cast our nets to the right side of the boat, figuratively. We preach the gospel to the right hand of God. We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we haul in men and women's souls. Someone might say, well, I've been telling people about Jesus many years now, and not many came to Christ. And my encouragement to you is you keep speaking. Keep being faithful and telling people the gospel and leave the saving to him he's the one who saves you don't save you don't have to try to convince people to come to Christ just tell them proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to them and you tell them your testimony you don't have to be a professional evangelist you just have to know the gospel tell them Christ suffered and died for their sins and tell them your testimony and what he has done for you I love this last section where the disciples were struggling dragging the nets full of fish and when, and, 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 and when they get to land they see a charcoal fire and fish on it and bread and Jehovah Jireh Christ the provider invites them to this beautiful Galilean breakfast fish and bread doesn't that sound wonderful? I mean they, we eat pancakes and eggs they eat fish and bread and Peter, and I love this, Peter does what all of the disciples couldn't do. He holds a net full of fish, 153 of them. What does that tell us? I mean, they, they, the disciples all tried to drag the net, so they couldn't do it. Peter comes and drags the net. Peter was, a, Peter was a strong man. Peter was a strong man. It's like Brian and Phil, you know, all these muscle guys in the church, and uh, you know, trying to drag the net, and John Verdi comes along and drags it by himself. That's a miracle. (laughs) If you didn't hear it, you said that's a miracle, but I don't believe it. Pay no attention to the man sitting in the front row. But Peter was a strong man. It says that they all tried to, they had trouble dragging nets, and Peter comes along and, but this also tells us another thing, that even though Jesus alone provides for them, he has them bringing some of the fish. The Trinitarian God alone saves souls. We know that. The Father elects people to salvation. The Son redeems us. And the Spirit calls us. But He will use us to pray and to bring the message of the Gospel to a lost and dying world. He makes us co-laborers with Christ. He alone provides for us. But He doesn't depend on us to give him a hand in providing. He uses us, but doesn't depend on us. It's God alone. There's an article in our Daily Bread magazine, and it said this. It said, missionary statesman, Hudson Taylor, had complete trust in God's faithfulness. In his journal, he wrote, Our Heavenly Father is a very experienced one, he knows very well that his children wake up with a good appetite every morning. He sustained 3 million Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. We do not expect he will send 3 million missionaries to China. But if he did, he, have, he, he would have ample means to sustain them all. Depend on it. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Thank you, God provides his presence. He provides for your needs, whatever they are, and you are blessed beyond your understanding. And i like to conclude with Dr. Kent Hughes in the section of John's Gospel, because he's saying it better than I could ever say it. And that's one of the things I learned when I went to, took my course. They said, you know, sometimes you quote other people because they say it better than you could say it. And this is one of the... This is a case in point. And he says this. If we are believers, we are all in the same boat, riding the same waters. The present age is an age of darkness, and the waters are some, sometimes cold and harsh, even stormy. All those in the boat are to be involved in fishing and casting and recasting our nets. As Christ's followers, we are called to face the same realities, to be honest about what is really happening in our lives. And as believers, the most creative, life-giving words we may ever utter are, I have caught nothing. Christianity from Golgotha onwards has been the sanctification of failure. Fundamental to living productively in this age is an honesty with ourselves and with God. There also must be an obedience. And with obedience comes a great catch. A catch that will follow us right into eternity where we will know the Lord more and more fully. John's words at the realization of the great catch, it is the Lord, expresses the ideal for all of us as we toil through life. In the the darkness, it is the Lord. In our our failures, it is the Lord. When our nets are full, it is the Lord. In all of life, it is the Lord, teaching us that we must rest and depend on Him. I'll say what I said in the beginning. When you trust and obey Christ and not your own efforts, you will be abundantly blessed. Even when you're going through hard times, you will be abundantly blessed. When, we, when Christ reveals Himself to us, we're blessed because we recognize Him. When He withholds from us, we're blessed because He's sanctifying us. When He provides for us, we're blessed because God will supply every need of ours according to His riches and glory. Go out and share Christ with a lost and dying world cast your net and don't be afraid because he is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think according to the power at work in us let's get ready for communion ushers if you don't mind please come and serve the elements and as I end this message and we get ready for the Lord's Supper let's reflect on Christ's revelation to us And his provisions for us. Because he's alive. Because we're born again. We have his presence. We have all we need. Let's also reflect. On his death. Represented in these elements. Which we're about to receive. Which made his presence. And all his provisions a reality. In our lives. Come down. And as Marty leads us in song, let us meditate on these things. Father, we just praise you and thank you for these elements. We thank you that Christ's broken body is represented in these crackers and Christ's shed blood for our sins is represented in the cup of grape juice we're about to partake. We ask you to bless it. Make it a reality in our lives, Lord. In Christ's precious name.